We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined this evening by the fine gentleman from the Taiwan Report podcast, those being Donovan Smith. Hi, great to be here again. And Michael Turton. Thanks for the opportunity. And both of whom are, of course, in Taichung. And we'll begin this week with the Central Epidemic Command Centre moving to extend the Level 2 coronavirus alert until at least August the 23rd. The decision means that swimming pools and national parks have now been allowed to reopen conditionally with some reduced capacities. And health officials have said that the government could consider further relaxing coronavirus-related restrictions that are currently in place in the near future, so long as the domestic cases remain low. However, some venues do remain closed, and those include hostess bars, nightclubs, ballrooms and KTVs, as well as amusement arcades. Now, the ease restrictions have not been extended to border controls, but while borders are still closed to most people, Education Minister Pan Wen Jong on Wednesday of this week announced that some 13,000 foreign students will be granted visas to travel to Taiwan before the new school year begins next month. Now, according to Pan, the visas will be issued to students studying for degrees and those enrolled in Chinese language scholarship programs. Exchange students and those enrolled in short-term language classes, though, will not be granted visas. And he's stressing that comprehensive disease prevention measures and border control regulations will be implemented when the international students begin to arrive. However, there is concern about those measures and where the 13,000 students will be quarantined on their arrival. Meanwhile, the travel bubble between Taiwan and Palau is set to resume tomorrow and local travel agencies are reporting high demand for tickets. The travel bubble has been suspended since late May when the government initiated the nationwide Level 3 coronavirus alert. Now, travellers to Palau will need to show negative negative results on a PCR test administered at the airport before they're allowed to board their aircraft and will be given another PCR test at the airport on their return to Taiwan. Now, those returning from Palau will not need to quarantine for 14 days, but they will be required to undergo five days of enhanced self-health management, followed by PCR tests and then nine days of regular self-health management. And arrivals in Taiwan from Palau will also be separated from other international arrivals. However, the five days of enhanced self-health management and nine days of regular self-health management, which is locally dubbed 5 plus 9, has sparked concerns that possible cases could slip through the net, especially with the coronavirus Delta variant running rampant in many countries in the Asia region. So, Donovan, we've got 13,000 students on the way. The government's dropped the level 3 to a level 2 and continued at level 2. And we've also got worries about possibly why are there no quarantine requirements for the travel bubble? Well, okay, the tra- addressing the tra- travel bubble first, Palau basically has no cases. So, to me, honestly, that seems perfectly reasonable and perfectly rational. Now, as far as the, se- the level two opening up into things like pools, you can, uh, under very, very strict conditions to the point where actually there are so many restrictions, for example, the hot pool, the cold pool, the kids' pool, the showers, all of these things, you're not allowed to use. So, actually, a lot of pools, for example, here in Taichung, they say the restrictions are so onerous, they're not even going to bother opening their pools anyway, in spite of legally being allowed to. Um, Now, I don't really know about the transmissibility of COVID in water, so I really can't judge on that, but I know they have limited amounts of time in the water. I'd assume the chlorine would kill it off. Um, Now, uh, as far as the 
students, there's a potential problem here, obviously. Now, the good news is, is of course, if you take 13,000 uh, people in their late teens and early 20s, there's a very little chance, of course, of them getting up to any kind of misbehavior that might break quarantine. But you never know. There might be that occasional one who uh, locked up there in the hotel, the quarantine hotel, uh, who just may perhaps respond to some of the urges of youth and uh, visit some of the other hotel rooms uh, in the quarantine hotel. And, of course, we know how well that went with the Novotel Hotel and the flight crews, uh, obviously, earlier this year that led to the current outbreak. So that is a much more serious uh, potential break. And because there's 13,000 coming from all over the world, it's almost certain that a lot of those kids are going to be coming in with the Delta variant. And, of course, that is remarkably virulent. I mean, obviously... um, We've been dealing with the beta variant here, which caught the local authorities flat-footed because it is a lot more virulent than the original strain, and apparently Delta is significantly worse than, than the strain right now going through Taiwan. So I think there are some legitimate concerns there. But on the other hand, uh, Taiwan's uh, foreign policy, particularly the new southbound policy, a lot of that is dependent, for example, on students and interpersonal relationships. And to kill those off for two years running really puts a crimp in those kinds of programs. Plus, uh, Taiwan's universities, obviously with the falling birth rate and the explosion in the number of colleges when they liberalized uh, a while back, means that financially speaking, a lot of these students are the financial lifeline for a lot of these universities and they don't want to see those the they don't the government doesn't want to see those collapse on their watch so they need these students in for both diplomatic and financial reasons but on the other hand there are some serious potential risks particularly with the delta variant well i think it's kind of interesting to to look at 13,000 students are coming in and yet students who are already here they can't get their visas renewed if you if you leave taiwan to do a visa run you can't come back right now mofa is not giving out residency visas so this, I see a program that's getting a lot of fanfare, but I also see at the same time that there's a lot of people already here and a lot of people who are holding residency visas but can't come in. So it's pretty obvious, as Dunderman put it, that this is a kind of subsidy program. <laughs> I think another issue with this reopening is that the government has been completely silent on the issue of migrant workers, so a lot of whom are still, especially in the north, who are still locked up in their dorms except for a two-hour window at which they can leave. Most of them can't go out overnight. Uh, I would like the government to, uh, to instruct these people, to, to instruct the brokers and the dorms to let, let those people go, right? Of course, that, so, issue, that issue, Michael, yeah. has been swept under the carpet. Of course, a few months ago, it was headline news, headline news globally, but now it's yeah. sort of disappeared from the newspapers and the TV. It, I guess, you know, it came and went. It had its day, right? But the people are still suffering. And it's, uh, it's a major issue for hundreds of thousands of people in Taiwan. Right. And what about the Palau issue, Michael? I mean, are you concerned about this lack of 14-day quarantine when people who go to Palau return? No. I think actually the government's handling it in the right way, and I don't think that Palau is, not, is much of a threat. I think we will see the same situation. It's going to be tours, right? Yeah. So, yeah so, and tours are ultimately not a very interesting way to travel. You go to... So, and also, people are going to Palau to get vaccinated, apparently. Yeah, I've heard that, too. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I actually think Mike uh, brings up a very good point on the uh, the workers uh, here. That that's I think that's a, a topic worth following a little bit more. Um, I, and, and indeed, as you noted, it seemed to be kind of a flash in the pan, and then it was the headline for the of the week um, that they were locked in, uh, completely locked in. Uh, but then the press just completely dropped the ball, as Mike noted, uh, it, even though the, the only difference between the situation before for a lot of them, now obviously it varies company by company, but that the, being allowed out two hours a week, and that doesn't really mean the problem has gone away. Two hours well, a week today. and zero well, hours today. a week. There's not really a huge difference between the two. Um, that doesn't mean the problem is solved. So I think Mike was, was right to bring that up, and I think that that is something that the government is going to have to look at going forward because it, what it does, it sets off a ripple effect both internally within Taiwan and externally. Internally, when you have a population of, I believe it's around 800,000 uh, workers and caregivers are in the country right, uh, right now, that's a, a significant percentage of the population here. Um, you know, that's what, two, 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 three percent, something like that. And, you know, that, that having that percentage of the population locked in, often in very crowded conditions, creating a perfect vector for disease spread, their solution is essentially to lock them in like prisoners. It isn't a long-term solution by any means. And then on the other hand, in terms of attracting the, the best and the brightest, and the most enthusiastic uh, of these people to come and work here and contribute to Taiwan's economy and to Taiwan society, this this message that it sends uh, to to these overseas companies uh, or countries where these people are coming from, the message that it sends is that Taiwan is not a terribly welcoming place. <laughs> and this means that this is going to discourage the best and the brightest. And the government very explicitly is trying to have student exchanges, which we obviously touched on, with these countries. And you want to attract the very best. You, you, don't, you don't want to just get any warm body in the room. And so this has a, a long-term societal impact. It has a diplomatic impact. And it, it has an economic impact, because if you can get the best machine worker, for example, which is a, 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 a very important and critical position, that more and more Taiwanese youngsters are not going into, for example, lathing or welding. or And these are very critical skills. If you get a very dynamic uh, person with some skill set, and for example, the Filipinos, often are university graduates, and so discouraging them from sending over the very best by not treating them well, the ones that are already here, and of course word's going to spread, that really is, is I think that Taiwan is long-term shooting itself in the foot and short-term creating a lot of serious potential risk for this population in particular, but it will spread to the entire population if disease gets into a lot of these dorms. So I, I, think, I think Mike was absolutely right to bring that up. 
And moving away from those issues and looking at vaccines, because where would this show be without vaccines for the past several months? Anyway, <laughs> anyway the local Medigen coronavirus vaccine was back in the news once again this week as Health Minister Chen Shih-jong on Wednesday announced that the Central Epidemic Command Centre will begin administering the vaccine on August the 23rd. Now, according to Chen, 1.06 million people have indicated their willingness to receive the Medigen vaccine since it was added to as a choice on the nationwide vaccination appointment system on July the 27th. Now, that statement came days after the health minister said that frontline medical workers who have received an AstraZeneca vaccine shot can now choose to take a Moderna jab to complete the two doses required to be inoculated against the disease. Now, an estimated 33,000 medical workers who received an AstraZeneca shot at least 10 weeks ago are now qualified to take a different vaccine as their second dose. And the announcements follow the approval of the so-called mix-and-match vaccine approach by the Advisory Committee on Immunisation Practices on July the 25th and that paved the way for people who have received an AstraZeneca jab to get a Moderna vaccine as their second shot. So Michael of course other countries have been mixing and matching for several months now and Taiwan this is only at the moment in Taiwan of course for medical workers not the general public. Well let me put it this way when I go in in September to get my jab if they hand me Medigen I will happily accept it. So what did you have for your first one? I had AZ. But you, you think mix and matching is no problem? You have AZ, Medigen, AZ, Moderna, all OK? If medical authorities are saying it's OK, here in Taiwan they're saying it's OK, then it's OK. It's really that simple for me. It should be that simple for everyone. Um, the only... I, I, I agree with Mike. I, I, you know, let's put it this way. In terms of my health, I trust the FDA here as much as I trust the overseas FDA's quickly approving... Uh, the vaccines overseas. So I, I would trust the, the Medigen uh, vaccine. I would, uh, I would happily take it. There's only one big downside to the Medigen um, is that at this point, it's not accepted overseas. In other words, it's, it doesn't have an emergency authorization, author, <laughs> emergency usage authorization overseas. It only has it here locally. So if you get that as your jab, it's not going to help you uh, get permission to travel. So a lot of companies, may, uh, countries may not recognize it. If you don't plan on traveling, I, I would recommend it, or, or as far as I know, that there's no reason to have any concerns about it above and beyond any concerns you might, might have over the other ones, right. uh, which, again, are also all, all on emergency uh, use authorization. Uh, so I think, you know, I would happily take it. Uh, I don't have any travel plans coming up. Um, but if you do plan on traveling abroad, it's not uh, authorized overseas. So definitely you'd want to keep that in mind. Michael. Let me, let me jump in here for a second. I think that overseas authorization, sooner or later, it's going to get addressed. Because this, the development of, it all, of its own magazine, gives a magazine, its own uh, vaccine, gives Taiwan the great leverage and raises its international profile if it can start maybe giving that out for free to the developing world and, you know, selling it to advanced countries. Eventually, it will get accepted, especially if it's already being, if it's already widely used elsewhere in the world. I think this is a strategy the government needs to follow. Give it to developing countries, sell it to developed countries, and get it accepted. And this will be really good for Taiwan. I've been very excited to see this development. Yeah, if I can add to that. Um, actually, by the way, quick plug here. Uh, Mike wrote a, a great piece actually on this issue in the Taipei Times uh, this last Monday, so you might want to check that out. It's, uh, I thought it was an excellent piece, and it's specifically on the Medigen vaccine. 
Um, I think Mike actually, and he goes into this in the article, is that if this goes through um, and starts becoming uh, accepted, and again, the the, the issue is immunobridging, which is the method they use to test its efficacy, which it hasn't been rejected by the EU or the U.S., but they're considering it. They don't yet approve uh, vaccines based on, on the method, but they're considering doing so. If Medigen does get accepted overseas, Mike's absolutely right. This could be a, a diplomatic coup for Taiwan, and it will put it in one of, I think, Mike, you can confirm this, was it one of five countries yeah, that uh, has produced a vaccine? Is that right? I think it's more than that, because we often forget Russia has a vaccine. <laughs> Maybe six countries? It, yeah. It's single digits is the number of countries yeah. that have developed their own vaccine. <laughs> And looking at some vaccine numbers, another shipment of the Moderna coronavirus vaccine arrived in Taiwan on this Sunday. And those 99,600 doses were purchased by the government directly from the US Drugs Company. Another shipment of AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine doses arrived on Thursday of this week. And that shipment is part of 10 million doses ordered by the government directly from the British-Swedish pharmaceutical company in October of last year. And this morning, as we woke up here in Taiwan, BioNTech had announced that it's already agreed a delivery date with Taiwan for its vaccines but as we're recording this show that exact date has yet to be officially confirmed. Now figures show that Taiwan has so far taken delivery of a combined 10.1 million doses of coronavirus vaccines including 6.37 million produced by AstraZeneca and 3.74 million manufactured by Moderna and those doses have come directly from the manufacturers, the global vaccine sharing program COVAX and from donations from other countries. So Michael how are those numbers numbers looking to you about the numbers of vaccine doses Taiwan has now received? Uh, they're looking really great. <laughs> I mean, what else can you say? It always needs more, but at least we're getting a steady supply. I think a couple last week, weren't we within like one or two days of running out of AZ? Mm, yeah. So I couldn't be happier to see what's happening with our uh, vaccine situation. And Donovan, the numbers there. Well, I think, it, I think it depends on who you're comparing it to. I mean, at this point, you've got the U.S., which has a surplus because you have a large percentage of the population that doesn't want to be vaccinated and they're just going bad and going to waste. Uh, So obviously compared to the U.S., uh, we're not doing great. On the other hand, compared to the vast majority of countries in the world where they have enough vaccines for single digits percentage of their population, compared to those countries, Taiwan is doing absolutely fantastic. I'd say viewed from a worldwide perspective, Taiwan is doing fantastic at getting vaccines. Uh, But obviously compared to, say, the U.S., the U.K., Israel, there's a handful of countries that uh, have enough for their entire populations. And obviously we're not there yet, and hopefully we will be soon. But of course, Michael, the issue is basically this needs to continue probably for the next eight months. This, 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 all these vaccines have to arrive to ensure that everyone in Taiwan is inoculated with right. two jabs, basically. Right. And I expect next year we'll have to get booster jabs as well, especially as new variants emerge. I mean, I, not to be... Not to, not to be a great downer on a beautiful Friday morning, but I expect we'll be getting boosters probably every year for the rest of our lives. Which, of course, Donovan, goes into the mix and match thing that the government are now doing with medical personnel. Yeah, I, I mean, overseas studies have suggested that that's a good idea. I mean, obviously, I'm not a doctor. I, I can't verify that. But uh, if, the, if overseas studies suggest that that actually has a higher efficacy, then great, definitely go for it. Um, the CECC has done a pretty good job of following, you know, what uh, 
you know, what the latest medical opinions are on these things. And uh, that's exactly what we want in these circumstances. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. And welcome back to Taiwan This Week. Here with me, Gavin Phipps and Donovan Smith and Michael Turton in Taichung. And it's coronavirus stimulus voucher time once again. And of course, that means it's also time for the government and opposition parties to butt heads as to the use of the coupons as opposed to cash handouts or even cheques. Cheques got mentioned this year. Now the new programme has been dubbed the Quintruple Stimulus Voucher. The Cabinet is hoping to roll out the next round of stimulus vouchers in October as part of government efforts to encourage domestic consumption following the recent domestic coronavirus outbreak. Now the full details of the new stimulus voucher programme have yet to be finalised. But Cabinet spokesman Law Bing Jung this week said the vouchers will be similar to those issued by the government in July of last year. People will be required to make an upfront payment to 1,000 NT in order to obtain 5,000 NT worth of stimulus vouchers in either print version or electronic form. The vouchers could be issued in denominations of 1,000, 500 and 200 NT, basically the same as the triple stimulus voucher programme in July of last year, but there have been calls for 100 NT vouchers to be included this time. Now they will be valid for online and on-site shopping and for paying for some fees, but not, once again, paying bills or fines. Now the government has said it's considering exempting the up front payment for those whose incomes have been affected by the local coronavirus outbreak as well as for people who are physically and or mentally challenged and to low to mid-income households. Now according to the cabinet those measures will likely benefit some 9 million people. Now there's also talk of Taiwan's super tech savvy minister without portfolio Audrey Tung designing an app for the vouchers to make mobile payments using the digital version of the vouchers much easier. Now once again the KMT have been calling for the government to scrap the voucher program and make cash payments instead, arguing that cash is more effective and that this round of vouchers is apparently different from last summer's as the coronavirus situation is completely different. Now the KMT has warned of a public backlash if the government opts for the type of voucher system that it used before. While the Taiwan People's Party is, well, not supporting vouchers or cash and says the government should issue stimulus checks, arguing that checks would boost the economy better than vouchers. Now the government needless to say, is dismissing both of their ideas, saying it believes vouchers are more effective than cash at boosting domestic consumption, as people might opt to pocket the cash or cheques in their bank accounts, basically instead of actually going shopping and helping local businesses. So Michael there, we've got a bit of an issue, we've got cash, vouchers or cheques. Take your pick mate, which one do you want to get? Oh, I want to see the vouchers. If you hand out money you get inflation, and so when you hand out money like that, you have to remove cash from circulation to keep inflation down. That way the government has to, doesn't have to tinker with the banking and financial system and the interest rates to adjust to the fact that it's creating tons of money, right? Then the purpose of this program is to, is to promote the food service industry because that has been the industry that's been really hard hit by this. And I, I don't think uh, a, a cash program will just go right to the bank. A lot of people will save it, uh, whereas it's more difficult to save vouchers. So on the whole, I support vouchers. As for checks, that's a really silly idea. If you want to reach people who, who don't have much money, they're probably not using the banks much either. So, it would, so the voucher program is the best compromise. There's one critique of it that I think has some force to it is that 
people have to go get them and they have to stand in line, which creates the possibility of COVID spread. That's been one of the KMT critiques. So if the government had another way to get the vouchers out that was less, that was, with lower risk of that, that would probably be better. And the app sounds like a great idea. Um, okay, well, as far as the TPP proposal on using checks, my comment is, okay, if you're going to use your 20th century imagination, if you've got any, you might want to try the later part of the 20th century. Um, now, moving on to uh, the other two proposals. I have a small preference for cash over the vouchers. And I'm not concerned about inflation because the volume is just simply not enough to significantly do so. And uh, as Gavin, when you noted in the intro, that one of the big government com- concerns is that people would just simply save it so it wouldn't go into the economy. Um, now, cash offers a lot of opportunities for people to, to actually make their own decisions on how they want the cash to be spent. And I, I understand the point of the vouchers is to stimulate the economy and particularly to help um, uh, uh, retail and uh, dining establishments, which, of course, make up a very large percentage of the economy. And there's definitely a good case to be made that that is, it, it would be very helpful. But um, there's a lot of key things that cash could be more helpful for. So, for example, if you're low income and you all of a sudden have all this money to be able to go out and pay for, uh, you can go out for a nice dinner out, but you can't pay your electric bill and your power is going to be cut off tomorrow. I think that the public can be trusted to make this, the decision to pay their their uh, their electric bill, their water bill, their insurance bill, their taxes or cigarettes or whatever it is that they actually need in their life versus what the government is trying to tell them to do with it. Uh, and plus, the stimulus, you know, the stimulus checks and the whole rollout system is considerably more complicated, as Mike noted, that people have to stand in line, which provides a disease risk. Uh, and the infrastructure and the printing and all of this adds a significant amount of transaction costs and government costs to the program, uh, which I think are unnecessary, whereas cash, uh, cash, direct cash transfers uh, would, would get around that and save a whole lot of money and be a lot quicker, faster, easier. You don't have to burden the post offices with it. Um, now, an argument could be made that when it comes to the stimulus checks, most people would just simply shift their money. So whatever income they've got in, that they, you know, that before they didn't have a choice, they could choose food or the electric bill. If they're poor, they could now have the stimulus checks if they can come up with the initial 1000 cash to buy the 5000 which is the current proposal. Um, then they, they'll take, they'll use the vouchers on things like food and the sort of thing, and then trying to use the money that they might have spent previously on food and then shift that over to their electric bill. So there's a good case to be made there. And I do understand the case that the government is making that they want to particularly target certain kinds of businesses on the high street and, uh, you know, know, the small businesses around the country that have been hit hard. Uh, So, again, I, I prefer the cash, but it's a mild preference over the stimulus, not a particularly strong one. And, of course, Michael Donovan brought up the fact the manufacturing and distribution costs of vouchers. Right. But there's no thing that there's no way to distribute that uh, a payment without transaction and administrative costs. Probably the vouchers are more expensive. But on the other hand, they have the kind of stimulus effect that the government is looking for. 
for me, the main issue with the whole plan is that, oh, wow, look, we have vouchers. This obscures the fact that what we don't have is a really good program for supporting employment and workers throughout the nation during this, during this uh, crisis. So it's kind of it's kind of like the 13,000 students. It's a really gaudy program that looks great until you realize that it doesn't address long-standing structural issues. Anyway, we're going to move away completely from the coronavirus now and move to where Taiwan was in the international headlines this week, that being with Lithuania giving the nod for the island to open a representative office in its capital of Vilnius using the name Taiwanese. Now, needs to say, Beijing raised its iry feelings about that move, and on Tuesday, <laughs> China recalled its ambassador to Lithuania and expelled the Baltic country's top representative to Beijing. China's foreign ministry called on Lithuania to immediately rectify its wrong decision or face the potential consequences if it allowed the office to open. Now, Lithuania's foreign ministry, though, described Beijing's actions as regrettable, but said it is determined to pursue mutually beneficial ties with Taiwan like many other other countries in the European Union and the rest of the world do in line with their own one China policy. Now, a spokesperson for the European Union also came out and basically said the same thing. You know, the EU has a one China policy. It doesn't stamp on its recognition of Beijing, but countries in the EU should be allowed to basically develop certain levels of ties with Taiwan as they see fit, while the US State Department also says it stands in solidarity with Lithuania's decision to basically allow Taiwan to open an office there. Now, Foreign Minister Joseph Wu announced in late July that Taiwan would be opening an office in Vilnius, which will apparently be named the Taiwanese Representative Office in Lithuania. But that, of course, begs the question, basically, the Taiwanese Representative Office in Lithuania. So, Donovan, does that signify a country or a nationality or do you think they settled on Taiwanese because they thought hey Taiwanese will be a better word less sort of likely to affect China relations than the word Taiwan on its own that's a good question and I don't actually have an answer for you um, you know it, it, saying Taiwanese it doesn't necessarily mean the na- it, I mean it can mean the nationality but it can also be descriptive in the sense of American or British um, I, I, I suspect you're right um, that they chose Taiwanese over Taiwan to be slightly less uh, in your face about it. But I, I really don't think that I, I'm, a, I'd be, I'm a little surprised if they thought that was going to get any traction uh, because it's pretty clear what the PRC reaction was going to be. I don't think that adding the ease on the end of Taiwan uh, is going to mollify the, the PRC. And I'd be surprised really if anyone seriously thought that that would do so. More likely is that they did it so that they could signal to other countries like, see, look, we tried, and then the PRC's hyperventilating reaction, and other countries then can look at it and go, but they didn't use Taiwan, they just used a, used a descriptive Taiwanese. Uh, you know, so it make, it, it, in a sense, it's po- I think it's more likely that Taiwan set that up as a trap using Taiwanese to show that this is the reasonable side. They could have gone with Taiwan. We went with Taiwanese to, to, you know, be polite to the People's Republic. And, of course, still, look, no matter what we do, these out-of-control Chinese communists are, you know, they're going to react badly no matter what we do. And so that builds sympathy in other countries. So I, I think that's actually more more likely. 
than they actually thought that it would have any practical effect in soothing uh, Beijing's nerves. And of course, Michael, we have shades of Guyana here, which of course, Taiwan made great hay of opening an office there, only several hours later to see that agreement scrapped because China obviously went, <laughs> hang on a minute, you've got the word Taiwan in it. <laughs> well, for me, I think this illustrates uh, something that I've been watching for the last 20 years. The Eastern Europeans really understand, and this is the way he actually said they really understand what it is like to be under the shadow of an authoritarian power that wants to follow them. And so it's really striking to me to look at the difference between Western Europe and Eastern Europe uh, on not only the Taiwan issue, but on China issues in general. Eastern Europeans get it. And Western Europe is deliberately refusing to get it. So the, the, uh, the good thing about it, too, is that China can't really do much because if it sanctions Lithuania, Lithuania is an EU member. So it has to sanction everyone in the EU. So think, that helps protect it. Then. Go ahead. But do you think that does help protect it, or do you think maybe some EU countries will just ring up Lithuania and say, hold on there, Hoss? <laughs> Probably some did. <laughs> but I'm sure most of them feel like it's, it's a small country far away from us, right? <laughs> to paraphrase history. And what about the Taiwan-Taiwanese issue there? Do you think Taiwanese is smarter than Taiwan? Or do you think maybe simply the Taipei office would have been better for everybody? China might not have complained so much. I think if it had been the Taipei office, there wouldn't have been complaints. I don't think... I'm I'm with Donovan on that. Taiwan-Taiwanese doesn't really matter. And moving away from international issues and domestic politics, which we haven't talked about in quite a while. Now the KMT's coronavirus delayed chairmanship election is edging closer, with party leadership hopefuls set to register their candidacies next Monday and Tuesday, while the election is slated for September the 25th. Now five hopefuls have so far come out and stated their intentions to run, those being former New Taipei City Mayor and former KMT Chairman Eric Ju, Sun Yat-sen School President Zhang Ya-jong, former Directorate General of Budget Accounting and statistics head Wei Bo Tao, former Zhanghua County Magistrate Zhuo Bo Yuan and incumbent chair Johnny Zhang. There's also talk that former Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guoyu is possibly eyeing the chairmanship but he's still stum about the matter. Now Eric Ju was the latest one to join the race and he formally announced his intentions last week on Facebook but he's also playing down the possibility of using his chairmanship bid as a stepping stone to running as the party's 2024 presidential candidate and Ju this week further expounded on his ideas, saying that if elected, one of his first things will be to establish an in-house polling centre to conduct surveys about issues people care about, as well as levels of support for different political parties. He also said he'll be establishing a group on the messaging app Line in order to combat fake news, and he plans to train young people who are interested in public affairs to become future party managers. Meanwhile, incumbent chair Johnny Jung on Wednesday laid out some of his ideas for re-election, saying that he will establish a committee to advise the party on its cross-strait policies, arguing that the committee will not only be for the party, but it'll be for other social groups and other political parties if they wish to take part. He also touted an updated approach to the 1992 consensus, which he's calling the 1992 consensus based on the ROC constitution, arguing that it will place greater emphasis on the Republic of China as a political entity. So, Michael, Eric Jew is going to run. There we go. That's the big news. We all knew Johnny Jung was going to run. Um, any any opinions about these char- these characters so far? Of course, the Zhanghua County Magistrate Zhuo Boyuan, uh, he has some uh, how would you say? He has some baggage, shall we say, with him? <laughs> well, 
I think the interesting thing that happened this week was Johnny Jung's uh, reconstruction of the 1992 consensus, which looked to me like he's throwing in the towel and try and there won't be any further attempts to reform that. So the first question that popped into my mind, my mind was not any of the people who are running, but Hoyo in 2024. What kind of cross-trade policy are they going to saddle him with, and how is he going to treat it? If and if they make him their candidate, Hoyo being the current uh, mayor of New Taipei City, who consistently is highly rated in uh, mayor surveys and is a very popular politician with people from both parties, both of the major parties. So I'm very curious to see how this election affects Ho's uh, chances of becoming the presidential candidate and uh, how this new uh, policy is going to uh, uh, affect that. What, what about Eric Jew's plans for a polling centre within the KMT? They already have an internal polling capability, so this will just be a way to, uh, you know, a way to create sort of fakey, overhyped issues that they can use to attack the DPP. That's how I see it anyway. Uh, Well, okay, on the polling issue, and actually uh, Eric Chu's three proposals, for all intents and purposes, the K&T actually has all three of those. Um, And the way they do it now, as Mike notes, they have some internal uh, polling capabilities. But when they want to do a poll that goes to the general public, then they hire an outside firm, which which actually looks better to the public using an independent pollster when they want to, you know, attack certain questions, and they tend to choose what the questions are, knowing in advance they'll probably come out in the KMT's favor. Um, so they're, I think that the way actually they're doing it now from a PR perspective is far more clever than using an internal polling uh, system. But the KMT race, the KMT chair race, I think this is, if not one of the most important, possibly the most important uh, KMT chair race in modern history, um, maybe not the most. Some of the ones you know that would that, that got Lee Dong Hui elected may have been more consequential in the long run. But it, it, I think it's a particularly critical one because at this point the KMT and the KMT ideology has made them unelectable uh, on a national level. The, their support for the 1992 consensus, closer ties with China. All these things are deeply, deeply unpopular now with the, with the broad swathe of the uh, of the Taiwan, uh, you know, the Taiwan electorate. So, in other words, they've basically completely ceded the middle ground to the DPP, and so now the DPP's stance on these issues is now basically dead center in Taiwan politics, whereas the KMT is now a, a marginalized outlier when it comes to that. So their popularity has continued to slowly slide while the, the DPPs goes up and down uh, depending on you know, current issues related with the government. The, the KMTs is just slowly eroding uh, long term. But, so Donna, but, Donovan, Donovan, uh, but Donovan, the question is, will Johnny Jung's new approach to the 1992 consensus get him the young vote and get him more votes? No. <laughs> um, no. Basically, his, his, his 92 consensus plus plan, um, it, it, what the difference between, uh, he basically, he, he, he launched this thing months ago, and it basically, it has absolutely no, as far as I can tell, there's no substantive difference between the 1992 consensus, you know, each side with its own interpretation, which is the traditional KMT one, and 1992 consensus, 
each side with its different interpretations. Oh, and by the way, the ROC Constitution. I, I don't really see how that is going to appeal to anyone within Taiwan because it still accepts the one China, uh, the, the whole one China framework, which is the major reason why it's not popular inside of Taiwan. I don't see how adding an vague emphasis to uh, the ROC Constitution does much to actually change the substance of it at all. Uh, you know, I don't see how when the 92 consensus first came out in the 2000s, uh, in the early 2000s and late 90s when you know, it was first mentioned, is that the ROC Constitution was all of a sudden completely jettisoned. I don't see that was the case, and I don't see how this is going to convince anybody that it's anything other than, than your grandpa's 92 consensus. But what about I, I the, don't see the difference. What about on the other side of the Taiwan Strait? Do you think Beijing would go, hey, yeah, okay, we'll agree with that idea? If it's coming out of Johnny Chang's mouth, probably not. And Michael, do you think Beijing would agree with Johnny Jung's updated approach to the 1992 consensus <laughs> or simply just fob it off and go, okay, go back to the drawing board and come back where you've got an idea? No, they, Beijing has long said that the 1992 consensus means Taiwan is part of China, period. They don't... They've never recognized the two interpretations uh, codicil. So the whole, the whole thing is just meaningless noise. It's Jiang trying to position himself in KMT internal politics, especially with respect to the people above him, to the party center, to the old, to the old guard of the party elite. All right. right. And, of course, Donovan, <clears throat> we've got two big runners so far, Eric Ju and Johnny Jiang. Um, that, if that's, if they're, they're the only two big names, who do you see winning? Uh, Eric Chu. Uh, pretty much all internal polling and external polling uh, shows that he has the edge. Now, obviously, there could be a surprise. There could be an upset. Polling uh, internally or per- polling of KMT members is a little bit dodgy. But it does look like, from from what I've seen in terms of polling, Eric Chu's got about a two-to-one lead over uh, over Johnny Chang. That being said, Johnny Chang is considered a serious candidate, and he does have significant pockets of support. Um, but I don't, at this point, John, Eric Chu is considered a heavyweight, and this is a full election. And it's worth noting that when Johnny Chang came in, it was after Wu Duanyi stepped down after the last election because to take to take responsibility for. The, the the electoral disaster. Historically, these by-elections have produced what I think most KMT members view as a, a caretaker, uh, a caretaker or temporary KMT chair. And so, Johnny Chang, and they'll they'll often give it to more not terribly big figures within the party, and often who represent a, a more extreme or. A, 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 a non-mainstream KMT opinion. So they went with Johnny Chang, who's considered much more of a reformer. In the past, they went with Hong Xiaoju, who is much more in the deep blue one. But when it comes to the elections for a full four-year term, that is when whoever the winner is has considerably more heft, considerably more power, and considerably more influence to direct the, the direction of the party over one of these temporary caretaker uh, chairs. So the, the, the thing is, is that because the KMT and KMT membership know this, 
I think that they're going to go with a party heavyweight, which at this point, Johnny Chang is just simply too young. He's too Taiwanese. He's too too much of a Taijonger to be considered a big heavyweight within the party. Maybe as he gets older, that'll be a different thing. But at this point, Eric Chu or Juliluan is considered a heavyweight within the party, and he has the heft. And I think that a lot of uh, the more conservative elements within the party, of which basically that's most of the party, are going to go with him because he's viewed as a an experienced heavyweight, an experienced pair of hands. And so I think that he's going to get it over Johnny Chang. Johnny Chang, they consider too young, and he, you know, his time is yet to come. I think in the uh, in the eyes of a lot of people in the party. And Michael, I mean, Johnny is a two horse race. Johnny Jung or Eric Jew at the moment? Uh, I think Donovan's analysis is spot on. Uh, I would. It would be nice, at least good for the KMT if it, if it could somehow Taiwanize, but. I just don't see that happening now. I think actually another really historic election to get back to Dunham's point about how historic this one's going to be was the 2005 election when Wang Jinping, you know, head of basically head of the Taiwanese factions within the KMT lost to Ma Ying-jeou. And uh, that was a that was a big loss for Taiwan. And it's a big loss for the KMT. We don't we have a party now that's that's out of touch with the mainstream that is nevertheless our number two opposition party. And that's not a situation that's good for Taiwan. And we're not going to see a change with this when, when in all likelihood, Eric Xu wins. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today by Donovan Smith. And great to be back. And Michael Turton. Thanks. Enjoyed it. Who you can both hear on the Taiwan Report podcast. Anyway, thanks for tuning into this week's podcast of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT, or even you've been tuning into the radio show with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app, where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.